Well, good morning, Greenwich, and welcome to the Tuesday, December 5th edition of the Basement Academy. I'm going to dive right into our morning psalm, a psalm that pulls the notion of worship and judgment together, as we were talking about yesterday. It is a familiar psalm, at least part of it will be very familiar to you, I think. So Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, They shall never enter my rest. We know the first part of Psalm 95, Come, let us bow down and worship. The second part about hardening the heart and not entering God's rest, an expression of his judgment. I was in the context of the 40 years of wilderness wandering when the people did not believe God and go up and take the land. They did not build their lives around his word. They did not worship or honor him properly. Then they fell in the wilderness. They they, they died. Okay, let's... Go a a couple steps further, thinking about judgment and wrath, uh, chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18. want to lean into this notion of the plagues and the bowls of wrath. And so chapter 16, just to kind of hear the language again, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. So a judgment upon false or perverted, subverted worship. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch 
people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Got to hear that. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that unholy trinity. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. As of the words of God there. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. <clears throat> Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky came huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. <clears throat> chapter 16. It's a hard one to read. And so you have the seven plagues, the seven bowls of wrath. And then this language right at the end about Babylon the Great drinking the cup of wrath, a cup filled with the wine of God's fury. <clears throat> and so the image of a cup of wrath, it's a metaphor, it's, a, it's an image, it's a symbol, okay? Drinking the cup of wrath is a metaphor or symbol of God's judgment. And so we're going to read about the fall of Babylon. Babylon representing all that is wrong in the human family, kind of representing the beast, uh, the state, that which sets itself up over and against God and seeks to have total control of the human family. <clears throat> and so this idea of a cup of wrath, um, I... I was going to go to Armageddon today. I think I'm going to do Armageddon tomorrow because it occurred to me overnight that there's just a lot of folks who are not comfortable with the notion of God's judgment and God's wrath. God is love, right? We, we've studied this. We went for this for what, 13, 14 weeks on Sunday mornings and, at Greenwich. God is love. So, so how can a God of love pour out wrath and have a cup of wrath filled with fury? 
Let, let me read some Old Testament passages. Um, this is the Psalm, Psalm 75, <clears throat> verse 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. So in a, the psalmist captures this image, right? A, a cup that God gives, and it's, it's, a, it's a cup full of foaming wine. So it's a picture of kind of drinking alcohol. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Mm. And then Jeremiah uh, the prophet, 25, what is it, verse 8? Oops, I think uh, maybe it's verse 15. I'm sorry, it's verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent, sent me drink it. And he goes on from there. Sorry about that. I've got the wrong, wrong verse. Here my 25, 15. <clears throat> so you've got this image of a cup or a bowl, as it were, being poured out, filled with wine that makes men stagger. It's the image of becoming drunk, right? Staggeringly drunk. And there's something in that, the notion of participating drunkenness is when you do this to yourself, right? You, you take the cup and drink it, <laughs> and then the effects are manifested in your life, but it's a choice you have made. <clears throat> and so the wicked drink this cup from the, sure, we'll have some more to drink. And so there's something there. We do something to ourselves. And so the judgment of God, it falls upon people, but it falls upon people who have made a choice. It is something they do to, their, to, to, to themselves just as a drunken person staggers under the choices they have made. But we have to connect to the New Testament, a, a story about a cup. Should be very familiar to us, the story of Gethsemane. And so this is after the Lord's Supper. Uh, Jesus has broken bread. He's given instructions to his disciples, a new commandment to love one another. And then he goes to Gethsemane to pray, invites them with him. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, uh, with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, 
if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, he asked, he asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He came back again, found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. And then Judas comes, <laughs> rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You know the story from there. And so we're familiar with the, not my will, but thy will be done. <clears throat> That's in the context of Jesus pleading with the father. If there's any other way to get this salvation accomplished, this redemption, if there's any other way, Lord, let it be. Father, let it be. It's a cup. <laughs> Jesus takes the cup of wrath. His death is pictured as drinking the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath is poured out on Jesus at the cross. And so the cup is metaphor, it is symbol, it is figurative language. And so the plagues of Revelation chapter 16, these seven plagues that are poured out of these seven bowls, and then this language of the cup of wrath being, being drunk of the cup of God's fury plays in. But I don't know if you caught the phrase <clears throat> as, the, as the plagues are being poured out of these bowls, Men refused to repent. They refused to glorify God. They cursed God. <laughs> Instead of worshiping God, they cursed God. And, and in that refusal to repent, in the, in, in the refusal to worship God, rather, I'm going to continue to live my life as I wish. I will worship. I will be the God of my own life. I will live as I wish. So worship is is not just going to church. Worship is going all the way back to chapters four and five of Revelation. There is a throne at the center and there are 24 thrones surrounding that throne and there are four living creatures and there are thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 angels. And so it is that picture of the throne at the center. Worship is building one's life, centering one's life on God, not on self. Centering one's life on the words of God and the will of God and the purposes of God. And one expression of that is going to church on Sundays, right? Pausing out of our busy days, taking a day of rest because God commands it. That's how we build our lives around God. He said rest. And so we stop from our labors and we go gather and then we gather around the throne. We gather around the lamb, the cross, the word of God. We lift our voices with the 10,000 angels and the living creatures and the elders and we sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And so worship isn't just the hour on Sunday. Worship is a life built around, centered on God and his word and Jesus Christ and his atonement and giving ourselves to that. Those who do not do that, they are building their lives around something their lives are centered on something else other than God, other than Christ, other than the Word. 
And that's the worship gone wrong. It's not just Sunday morning worship. It's the way we live our lives. And so men refused to repent and they cursed God. So let me just just try to wrap up with a couple pastoral thoughts. We're going to get to Armageddon tomorrow, I promise. To talk about God's judgment and God's wrath is being faithful to the biblical witness. It is not a fundamentalist ploy or a fundamentalist rant. You know, these, they talk about being Bible thumpers who are talking about fire and brimstone. That is a caricature. Now, are there some traditions that emphasize the judgment of God and the wrath of God perhaps more than others do? I am not one who speaks often about the judgment and wrath of God. If you've been at Greenwich, you know that. But this is, a, this is biblical witness. From Genesis to Revelation, we have God exercising judgment upon human sin in the garden. Chapter 3, the curse upon Adam and Eve and then expelling them from the garden. Talked about this yesterday. The mark of Cain, Cain you know, murder of his brother, all the way here to Revelation. And I've read from the Psalms, from the prophets, Jesus speaks about this. The time will come. Many of his parables are talking about the kingdom and the separating out of sheep and goats. And so judgment is not inconsistent with 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 the biblical witness, and it is not inconsistent with God's character. So this is not a fundamentalist rant that I'm engaging in right now. It's trying to be faithful to the text. And so people say, well, that's inconsistent with God's character. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. Absolutely, I agree with you completely. And he is a God who executes judgment. Those are not inconsistent. Judgment and grace are two sides of the same coin. Tried to demonstrate that yesterday or speak of that yesterday. The cross, the baptism, the Lord's Supper, these signs and symbols, they have grace and judgment. It was an expression of grace for God to preserve a remnant, to preserve Noah in that. The flood was judgment upon the wickedness of humanity. But in grace, he preserves It was judgment upon Pharaoh and his stubbornness, his refusal to let God's people go and worship. It was judgment upon Pharaoh. It was grace that allowed then for the sprinkling of the lamb's blood to preserve God's people so that they could go and worship and be set free. And so judgment and grace work hand in hand. Now, here's a profound irony. When people object to the notion of God's judgment, they are judging God. (laughs) So it's profoundly ironic. We reserve to ourselves the right to judge. We, We can say that's wrong. God is wrong to judge. God is wrong to exercise wrath. To, to have a cup that he gives to people who are not obeying his will. How dare God do that? The irony, the profound, the most, the most profound irony is the human family or that human individual, and, and it collects up to a lot of people, the human family sits in judgment of God. Wow. 
And I've heard people, even Christian people, the God I serve, the God I believe in would never judge anybody. And in so doing, that person is judging God and saying, God is not just, God is not right to exercise judgment upon the world he made, right? (laughs) And the blindness of the human family at that moment, the inability to see I'm judging God at that moment. And some people get very vexed and angry. They become wrathful as it were. Every parent knows it is necessary to exercise judgment. The child rises up and throws something at their sibling. You may not do that. Go to your room and punishment is consistent with love. That is an expression of love. The child left to himself will become a disgrace, says the Proverbs. An undisciplined child is, the scripture says, is treated like a bastard, like a, like a, like a child that nobody cares about. They're left to themselves. We need instruction. We need discipline. We need punishment and training. Sad, but it's because of our sinful nature. <laughs> we go our own way, and going our own way leads to anarchy and, and chaos. And so there's a profound irony for those who are uncomfortable with uh, the language of judgment and the reality of judgment. They, they call it, oh, you fundamentalist, you know, you're just a Bible thumper. No, we're just being faithful. And so here's the key. And this is where Christians, this is central to the Christian understanding. The cross of Jesus Christ is the clearest expression of God pouring out his wrath in grace. It's it's the clearest expression of God's judgment that meets with mercy or as an expression of mercy. It is Jesus saying, Father, if there's any other way, he understands what he's getting ready to go through. Dispel any notion that Jesus was some kind of naive, innocent victim. He fully knew well what was going on when he was going to be betrayed and handed over. He'd already told his disciples this was going to happen. He knew that when he was handed over, he was going to be nailed to a cross suffer in the, the most incredible physical pain possible and the emotional spiritual reality of being the one upon whom God pours out his wrath and his judgment for human sin, for no sin of his own. If that's not grace, people, we can never understand grace. <laughs> the punishment he bore, we deserve. The human race deserves And so God in his grace puts forth his son, sends his son in human flesh to bear sin on behalf of the human family. And there are still those who refuse to repent, who refuse to acknowledge God's gracious provision of mercy, the lifeboat, the ark that is Jesus Christ, that we participate in through baptism and and the Lord's Supper. And so the cross, we lift up the cross as the sign of God's judgment. That's important to maintain because that keeps us in a humble place. We don't become haughty and look at others and say, oh, go judge them, God, and go judge them. No, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I cling to the old rugged cross, right? So let me end there. Um, This is a reflection, a pastoral reflection 
on the necessity, the reality, the purpose of judgment, but the joyful reality of the cross that sets us free. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, be pleased to lead us to a deeper understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ and your wrath and judgment poured out on him and not on ourselves. And so we worship you. We honor you. Just and true are your judgments. We are in the wrong. You are in the right. Lord, forgive us when we judge you. And Lord, may we always walk with humility as those who deserve your judgment, but who have been shown your mercy and grace. Help us to walk even this day with, with wisdom, with humility, with compassion and grace, and to bear witness to others of the cross of Jesus that can save them as well from judgment. Lord, hear our prayer as we make it in the name of the Savior who taught us to pray together saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May God give you joy today as you walk in the power of the cross and the shadow of the cross as you cling to that old rugged cross as the place where your salvation was won for you through Jesus Christ. May he bless you this day and forevermore. Amen.